Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. All right, so welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are having our first ever urological surgery episode and we are absolutely pleased to have two of my uh, very good friends here in cleveland ohio first of all we have dr lee ponsky who is a professor of urology at case western reserve university school of medicine who is also the director of the urologic oncology center at uh Seidman cancer center lee welcome to btk thanks thanks for having me and we also have Dr. Edward Chirillo, that's the program director in urology uh, at uh, University Hospitals Cleveland Medical Center, and also a professor of urology at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. He's also the vice chair of clinical operations at the Urology Institute at UH. Ed, welcome to BTK. Uh, thanks a lot, guys. So, Lee, we'll start with you, and then Ed will cross over. So, uh, Thanks so much for joining us. We have not had, as I said, any urologists on before, and and we're we're really good. We've had a lot of requests to get the different subspecialties on, and uh, a lot of requests for urology. And you're just going to walk us through some things tonight. But Lee, first, tell us a little bit about where you're from, where did you train, how did it come to the point where you wound up here in Cleveland? So I'm actually from Cleveland, Ohio. I'm one of the few born and raised, and ended up here as well. Uh, went to undergrad in University of Rochester in Rochester, New York, came back to Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and then did my residency at the Cleveland Clinic, and then did a fellowship in urologic oncology, followed by another res- uh, another fellowship in uh, minimally invasive surgery, both at the Cleveland Clinic, and then in 2005 came over to the University Hospital to head up the oncology program in minimally invasive surgery. And... Uh... For those of you out there, uh, we'll get into this a little bit later, but uh, Lee had a very interesting TED Talk that I encourage everybody to Google out there. Uh, gives a very wonderful TED Talk. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll go into that, but uh, you got to check that out. And also, one of the Spider-Man movies was filmed at his house, Go Cleveland. Uh, which one was it again, Lee? Tell us it's which actually one Marvel. Was. It was Captain America, Marvel, Captain America. So, you know, you, That's you, right. We didn't get Spider-Man yet, but maybe next time. <laughs> Captain <laughs> it <America>. was. <laughs> Captain America. It was the, the scene with Robert Redford, right? In your house? That yeah. was in your kitchen yeah. or what was it? It was in my yeah, kitchen, was, yes. The, the maid was so shot in my kitchen. Oh. So if you want to, so everybody out there, all BTK listeners, check that out. That's Lee's, uh, that's Lee's kitchen. <laughs> Ed, tell us next to you, buddy. So tell us a little bit about you, where you're from, and uh, how to get to the point where you're at UH. I, uh, I grew up in Chicago, went to college in Chicago, and med school in St. Louis, and as a function of the match, landed as Lee Ponsky's co-resident at the Cleveland Clinic. Finished my training in 2003 and went into private practice in greater Chicago for two years, and then because most of us make our professional connections where we train, I was lured back to Cleveland by my relationship with with Lee and and the senior people at the time who I'd had the opportunity to work with. So now I'm a Cleveland lifer, uh, having lived here uh, having come back in 2005 when Lee and I both uh, came on staff at uh, University Hospitals. Uh, Ed is also a world-class triathlete. Typically, a uh, little tidbit for you right there, and we'll get into that a little bit more. So, uh, guys, thanks again for uh, for joining us. And again, we're just going to touch on a lot of topics tonight uh, that covers the world where maybe urology and general surgery will cross over a little bit. 
So just to get started, you know, for our, our urology for the general surgeon episode, you know, one thing I was one thing I was surprised to hear from a lot of my my surgical mentors, specifically my you know military surgical mentors, about an area that they didn't really anticipate having to deal with as a general surgeon was testicular torsion. Um, can you just for the general surgeon out there um, that may be in an austere environment that may have to deal with this? How, what's your advice to them? How do you approach this? How do you manage uh, testicular torsion? Oh, sure. So, um, so you know, testicular torsion is part of uh, one of the most serious diagnoses in the differential of acute scrotal pain, right? And that includes infection, trauma, torsion, and any downstream stuff uh, like abscess, uh, or neoplasm, or anything like that. So, uh, you know, you always have to have it in your head when you're called, whether you're the urologist or the general surgeon or the ER attending when someone has an acute scrotal problem. And then, you know, in the, at the highest level, you treat testicular torsion uh, like you treat an appendectomy. Um, so it's never wrong to explore a scrotum in fear of torsion to fix it. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's a big save if it does happen to be torsion. We have a lot of diagnostics now. So if you, um, if you get this diagnosis and you strongly suspect torsion based on the history, such as uh, acute onset, absence of fever, uh, no history of urinary tract infection, no history of trauma, and on exam, uh, high riding, testicle, uh, exquisite tenderness. Uh, the kid is the right age. So classically, this uh, issue appears when you're 10, 11, 12, 14, 15, 16. Very rare when you're older and rare when you're younger, although it can happen. The reason it's that age group is that's when the testicles grow as the uh, child goes through puberty. And if there's an anatomic predisposition to the testicle being able to twist up, it happens when the testicle starts to grow like that. So that helps one sort of remember that torsion is higher in the differential during those age groups. And then uh, the goals of surgery, if it is torsion, um, you know, you don't have to have diagnostic imaging to confirm it. Um, most often it's ultrasound showing no no blood flow to the testicle. There are a couple of occasions where the ultrasound isn't helpful. In very early torsion, there can still be arterial flow to the testicle. So you can't, if you have a strong clinical suspicion, you can't rule out torsion in the early phases with ultrasound because the pathology is the testicle twist obstructing the venous outflow and then eventually the arterial inflow. Uh, but in very, very early torsion, there can still be blood flow to the testicle. And an ultrasound in a very young child, one-year-old, two-year-old, the testicle might be so small that no flow is identifiable because the testicular artery is so small. So you may have a false positive ultrasound in that case. Um, so then when you, you explore, uh, the goals are to untwist. Um, you know, there's some clinical pearls there. Un untwisting is opening a book, so you, you twist to the ipsilateral thigh, uh, and it'll be obvious on visual inspection uh, that you can um, that you can do that. And then you fix the testicle with a uh, non-absorbable fine suture, usually 5-0 proline, uh, to Dardo's fascia to uh, keep the testicle from ever twisting again. And then an important point is to uh, pex the other side uh, to uh, ensure that they don't twist on that side either uh, because they may have the same anatomic abnormality that caused the twist on the, on the first side to begin with. 
Do you, is there anything that okay. you can do short of taking to the operating room? Is there anything non-operatively? Can I grab the scrotum and try to fiddle around with that and see if I can get anything to do short? So you can, in the in the short term, try to untwist the testicle. Um, they call that manual detorsion by opening that book, twisting the testicle to the ipsilateral thigh. Uh, you'll have to give a pretty good amount of pain medicine, just like setting a, a bone in the ER because it's pretty painful for the patient. But if you can get that to happen, the patient will have immediate relief of the discomfort and you'll actually feel the testicle detwist itself. So that's, that's worth a try if you're in a good ER that can, can monitor a sedated patient uh, to go for that. It'll buy you a little time operatively, but you still have to text the testicle because they're at high risk for it to, to happen again. Lee, let's stop short of the, the patient with torsion and let's just go to the person who I'm sure that we all have our difficult patients. What, what is your approach to just kind of nut pain in general? The, the, the young, one of the guys, obviously, the I, I'm prior military, the fellows are military, and they just see a lot of these young, otherwise healthy guys that just come in very active and all of a sudden, boom, they got testicular pain. What, what, yeah. what can you do? What, do you, what are you looking for short of torsion? What's your approach? Well, first of all, I send them all to Ed to uh, manage them. But uh, no, uh, <laughs> uh, so it's, it's just like anything else. You want to make sure that there's nothing bad going on. So make sure there's no evidence of infection or tumor. I think that's oftentimes the first thing you want to do. And the one thing that is really good when you're evaluating the testicles is the scrotal ultrasound. So there's almost it's almost never wrong to get a scrotal ultrasound because it's really going to be the best test to t- make sure that anatomically nothing's wrong. So it's never wrong to order a scrotal ultrasound if there's any concern, and oftentimes that will help even reassure the patient, even if you're telling them that you think this is just inflammation. And once you've checked to make sure anatomically there's no evidence of tumors, you've done an exam, you don't palpate any masses or anything significantly abnormal, so you don't appreciate a varicocele or a hydrocele or a uh, epididymal cyst, which are very common findings. Um, but if it's just kind of sore testicles that you don't find an infection, anatomically uh, normal, uh, it's usually scrotal support. And, you know, these are the kinds of things that really become painful to the urologist because you see a lot of this. Uh, but once you kind of get the algorithm down, it becomes much easier to manage and it's better for the patients, which is scrotal support, sometimes some sits baths. And I use what I kind of came up with, with what we call an anti-inflammatory taper. So I actually give them six weeks of anti-inflammatory, starting at a pretty high dose, taper them down. Even though you don't need to taper anti-inflammatories, it just gets them off the higher doses quicker. And uh, I would say 80% of the time that seems to work uh, between the anti-inflammatories, the scrotal support, and the cyst baths, if you've ruled out everything else in terms of you know, malignancy or infection. So the next topic we want to talk about is the, well, this is kind of a multimodal uh, uh, or multidisciplinary uh, topic at the colovesical fistula. And we just kind of want to hear from the urologist perspective, what kind of things do you look for? What tests do you use? What tests do you suggest to use to work it up uh, when you're talking to your surgery co- or the general surgery colleagues? Yes, this is Lee. I can start if you want. They, you know, sometimes these can be very obvious and sometimes they can be very challenging. So certainly starting with the symptoms, patients with recurrent urinary tract infections, uh, that just you can't seem to get under control. Uh, sometimes these patients will have, in men, they'll have prostatitis-type symptoms. Um, and uh, and, and the, the clear sign is certainly is when they mention that they have pneumaturia. And sometimes you have to ask about it uh, because often patients may not even understand what what's happening. 
but certainly once a patient mentions pneumaturia, uh, you really have to look very hard to make sure you, you're looking for the, the fistula. So cystoscopy or looking in the bladder can be done. If it's done in the office, you know, it's, it, it can often be challenging. I was just telling our residents this week, I say it's a minority of the time that you see an obvious large defect in the bladder. Often it's a little pinhole and sometimes very difficult to identify. So it's not always obvious. Uh, certainly imaging with CT scans with a CT cystogram uh, and again, making sure that your radiology colleagues know exactly what you're looking for because um, that's going to be helpful for them uh, in evaluating it. Uh, and then also with working with your colorectal colleagues that they may want to do a colonoscopy or some sort of imaging study with contrast from the, from the GI side. So it is, a, I do believe, a, a uh, multidisciplinary approach, which is how we typically approach it. And... Um, working from both ends. I don't know, Ed, do you have any additional thoughts? No, I, the only thing I would add is that um, it's, a, it's a rare situation where the symptoms can often be urologic, pneumaturia, air in the, in the urine, recurrent urinary tract infections, sometimes blood in the urine, but the pathophysiology for the creation of the problem is almost always colorectal, uh, statistically. So chronic diverticulitis, colon cancer, inflammatory bowel diseases, um, very rarely is the primary pathology urologic. So, you know, whoever makes the diagnosis, uh, you know, often consults the other person, not just for surgical help, but to rule out any of these pathologies um, to make sure we treat the disease that's present appropriately. Yeah, that's a good that question. And I'm curious is, so sometimes it presents to one or the other of us. When they present to general surgery, diverticular disease, they get a CAT scan. Sometimes they may or may not say comment on colovesical fistula. Is it mandatory? I, I hate to use the word mandatory, but is it? do you guys recommend, do you want to see these patients? Do they all need cystoscopy? Obviously, in the right setting, we're going to do a scope on the back end because a lot of times it is a colorectal pathology and you'd hate to miss something like a malignancy or at least know that you're dealing with it. But uh, short of short of uh, needing you guys there in the operating room for a bladder repair or something like that, should we be referring them to you in all cases? I think, you know, you know it, it, oh, go ahead, Lee, go ahead. I think it's certainly, nothing's really mandatory. I would usually say most things in urology we could handle in the operating room when we're called in, you know, depending on how your relationship is and how you're set up. We're in an academic center, so we're usually there. I think if you're not in an academic center where, you know, where the colorectal surgeons are operating, knowing that their urology colleagues are always there and going to be available to kind of pop in, it may be more beneficial for them to be aware of it. And I think, as Ed pointed out, you know, there are the rare occasions when you may have a urologic pathology and you don't want that to go unrecognized. So I think, you know, an extra pair of eyes and loading the boat with expanding the team early on never hurts uh, so that, you know, you might want to make sure that you're evaluating not only the bladder, but the ureters. And sometimes you can, the bladder may look fine, but there can be a fistula to one of the ureters, which again is very rare, but not not unheard of. So so, uh, Ed, let's say it's a Thursday. So for uh, BTAK listeners, uh, when I operate on Wednesdays, Lee helps me when I operate on the Thursday, Ed will jump in there. And Ed, let's say it's a Thursday and, and I'm doing a diverticular colovesical fistula case and it's pretty extensive. And as we all know that it's the, uh, the vast majority of times I can just pinch off that and not do a whole lot of anything. But let's say this is a pretty significant and I find myself into the bladder. 
Walk me through how you do a bladder repair. What, 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 when does it need to be repaired? When does it, can it be left alone when you're repairing it? Do we have, what, what layers, what sutures, do we need to put anything extra? Is there a flap? What, what do you do? Yeah. So, um, so as you pointed out, a lot of these times you can pinch it off and a, a pinhole, uh, barely recognizable hole to the bladder doesn't really need to be closed. We have a lot of clinical experience with that between urology and colorectal surgery and the patients do fabulously. They don't get transmural abscesses in the bladder and they don't fistulize to their staple line. They, they do very well. If, if we're called into the operating room and there's a, there's a cystotomy, a hole in the bladder because of the dense uh, inflammatory reaction to the dome, you know, the goal is first to help the colorectal surgeon finish excising the disease segment of colon and make some decisions about you know, how they can put the colon back together again uh, effectively. Uh, in that situation, I would want to take the opportunity to excise the entire tract, the inflammatory tract uh, that was present uh, to the bladder. And then once all that's uh, taken care of, you know, bladder closure is a secret to urologists. It's not that tough. So we use, uh, we use absorbable sutures, any uh, permanent material in the urothelial tract will collect the salts from the urinary system and they'll start to get stones on, on staples and ethabon suture and proline. So you can use almost anything. Most of us use a medium-sized vicral suture, 2 or 3 suture, and close uh, the bladder in two layers. Um, you can run it or interrupt it. It's a very forgiving uh, tissue. And the um, and you want to do it in a watertight water uh, um, water fashion. And then depending on what tissues you have available to you, you can flap some of the peritoneal fat from the back of the bladder up over the suture line. Uh, and then we leave the Foley catheter upsize it uh, to a 20 uh, to ensure excellent drainage and uh, leave a drain and study the patient sometimes before they even go home on day four or five from the hospital and with no leak, the drain and the catheter come out. Fantastic. Hopefully you won't have to do that anytime soon. Yeah, but Ed, don't make them realize how easy it is to repair it. So we won't. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Right, I know. We won't give away all uh, the Well, and, and, in, and in truth, um, you know, you guys make the colon look easy. So, you know, we get little rents and small bowel colon on reoperative uh, cases and it causes some anxiety for fear of leak or abscess development or something that's, that's more serious than we think. And uh, our experience with... Dr. Steele and his team has always been there. They're, uh, they're very efficient and very confident that, you know, everything's going to be fine, which is nice. So, you know, because you do something every day for 20, 25 years, it does seem easy, but, um, you know, we're lucky to have the colorectal team we have to work with and, and the way we do it is, you know, worked out well so that we don't have, um, you know, leaks and complications. Absolutely. Okay, so moving on, something you know we deal with a lot is is post-op urinary retention. So, if you could just you know, let's say they underwent an uncomplicated abdominal surgery, doesn't matter, lap coli, whatever. Um, you know, it's a, it's an older gentleman. You know, six hours later, he fails his void. He has six hundred mLs in his bladder. Maybe he gets an in and out. Maybe he gets a catheter overnight. Again, unable to to empty his bladder. Unable to void. Do all these patients need urology follow-up? How should we be dealing with these patients? Should we be starting them on medications, decompressing them for a certain amount of time? What's, what's your guys' approach? 
I can tell you that, you know, it, it, there's, especially when you're talking with colorectal patients, it's important to differentiate the patient who had the lap hernia or the coli versus major pelvic surgery, where the, some of the nerves involved may uh, be part of the issue. So if you're talking about a straightforward intra-abdominal surgery, like lap coli or hernia in the gentleman with post-op retention, uh, it's very common. We see it a lot. Um, I think you have two options to try to, number one, teach this gentleman how to do intermittent catheterization, which in the post-operative setting is extremely unlikely, or sending him home with a catheter. Um, I would recommend putting all of these patients, if possible, on an alpha blocker, whether it's uh, Flomax or Tamsulosin. I actually prefer using in the immediate post-operative setting Rapaflow just because the, the onset of the medication is a bit quicker, although it is a bit more expensive. Um, and then if the colorectal team or the general surgery team is comfortable managing that postoperatively, certainly they can bring the patient back a few days later uh, for a trial of void, which would involve filling the bladder through the existing catheter and removing it to see if they can then void to completion. Uh, however, I would tell you most urology practices would be certainly happy to take care of that, whether it's with the urologist or their nurse practitioners and seeing the patients to make sure that they're voiding and you know the patient may have an underlying issue with dph that may need to be managed chronically so uh, it's probably not a bad idea to get the patient engaged with a urology team lee you break up a you bring up a very good topic and so uh, there's as we told earlier a lot of different people listen to this walk me through a little bit about a fill in, uh fill and pull how much are we putting in how are you doing it take us behind the curtain uh in the land of oz yeah. I like the fill and pull. We don't usually call it that, but I, we're going to maybe we need to start calling it that. I like that. So, um, the you know, I guess it depends on the patient and their bladder capacity uh, and how much they can tolerate. But usually we'll put in a couple hundred uh, cc's, uh, assuming they can tolerate it. Uh, but I think, you know, what happens often if you don't go to a urology practice, they'll just take out the catheter and then you have to wait for the patient to fill their bladder enough to void. So you kind of expedite the process if you uh, fill their, you know, you disconnect the catheter from the drainage bag, and then through the catheter itself, you can take a Tumi syringe or any kind of syringe and fill it with two, three hundred cc's of fluid, and then you remove the catheter. And then, oftentimes, depending on how much you put in, you can measure how much they voided to see if they more or less emptied to completion. So that's generally what we'll do. Are you looking for a certain percentage or you know, just just kind of a gestalt, whether they feel like they're emptying all the way? Well, it's not really what they feel like. It's, you know, you know what you put in because because they had a catheter, you know, before you start filling them, their bladder is generally empty. So if you put 300 cc's in and they void 280, you know, you're probably okay. So I don't want them walking, you know, if they if you put 300 cc's in and they only void 50 cc's, I'm not happy with that. So I generally like in general them to have less than 100 cc's of urine left in their bladder. Uh, that's kind of acceptable uh, in general, sometimes more. But I don't know, Ed, if you have other tidbits. No, I think that's that's fabulous. I mean, I think the one thing that makes this very frustrating for our general surgical colorectal colleagues is the patient with the underlying disease process that you talked about. Sometimes these guys are limping along for a long time with fairly substantial lower urinary tract symptoms related to large prostates or some other issue, and we unmask it by identifying it in the hospital. And that's where the confusion comes in for the patient. The, you know, they've had a successful you know, colon operation, uh, lap coli, 
you know, you pick it, appendectomy, hernia repair, and then the the big uh, stumbling block becomes this voiding issue, and they're they're quite p- confident that they never had a problem like this before. But mm-hmm. you know, once we get them well down the line and they're still unable to pee, it's clear that they've had some sort of some sort of underlying pathology that they weren't aware of. So in your proactive discussions with the patient before urology even sees them, um, sort of setting the tone that while this is often self-limited, related to maybe sympathetic overtone from the stress of the operation or whatever the issues might be, that there is a chance that this might turn into a long, a long diagnostic process because certainly men in their 50s, 60s, 70s or older have, have existing lower urinary tract problems that only unveil themselves when they're in the hospital for some other reason. It helps it helps the family understand what's going on and take some of the acuity of solving the problem uh, off the shoulders of the general surgeon. Well, I think the next topic we want to dive into is uh, the surgical management of urologic trauma. I think we're, what we'll go through are a diff- couple of different scenarios here for you. Uh, so the first one I have is, uh, you know, the typical trauma patient comes in after an MVC. Uh, you're doing your primary survey, moving to secondary uh, and find that the patient probably has a pelvic fracture and has blood at the meatus. Uh, can you walk us through, but what, what are your recommendations for that surgical resident or uh, trauma surgeon at this point? Um, so, uh, you know, I'll, I can go on this one. The, um, so, it's, you know, the thing to rule out whenever there's a pelvic fracture or any rapid acceleration, deceleration injury is, um, you know, urethral injury. And blood at the meatus is one of the hallmark signs of that. But if you have a pelvic fracture, you should also be considering the possibility of having a, a urethral injury independent of that. So with blood at the meatus, you don't want to instrument the urethra. What you want to do is get a urethrogram uh, to assess that the urethra is in, in place. And if there's going to be a bad injury, it's at the point of the urethra entering the, the external uh, sphincter, which is the GU diaphragm, just at the level of the apex of the prostate. And if there's an injury there, you need urologic uh, help to either primarily realign that tear or injury with endoscopic techniques or place a suprapubic tube, depending on what else the patient needs done uh, surgically. Ed, when we're dealing with this situation, I've heard some of the trauma surgeons just say, even if there's blood at the meatus or not, just grab as big a foley as you can and try to get that thing through there. And if it works, it works, and then you're good to go. Uh, I, I understand that that may be just somebody's practice, but is there any downside to that? Well, the downside is that you have a, if you have a partial urethral tear that um, – uh, uh, I want to use the word recklessly, but um, maybe, that's, maybe that's aggressive. Uh, if you, without uh, forethought, just try to place a catheter without visualization – you can convert that partial tear that might heal spontaneously without uh, the need for surgical repair into a complete tear. And the long-term sequela of a partial or a complete tear can be very different. A complete tear with scarring and delayed repair can result in incontinence requiring more procedures, can result in impotence, uh, which requires the management and, and is very life-affecting. And a partial tear, if it heals well and spontaneously, um, doesn't require secondary surgical procedures and, and has a much better long-term quality of life for the patient. Scott, to your, point, I, I, yeah. to, your, to your point, and I, I completely agree with Ed, it's one of those situations where if one of our residents were called and there was blood thymiatus and they did not get a retrograde urethrogram, we would kill them. <laughs> because that's one of those things that, it, again, if the patient then they try to you know, 
advance a catheter in there without some sort of visualization uh, and there's a complete disruption, it could certainly be on that physician to try to answer why they did that because they may have caused that. So I agree with that completely there. So quick and dirty, how uh, what, what tools are they grabbing? What are they going for? Let's say we're in a place where urology is not available. What what, uh, what do they need? How do they do it? I think you need, you need fluoro set up, a C-arm. Uh, you, you need some contrast material. And uh, ideally, if assuming the patient's stable, uh, you would uh, get a, a tumor syringe or even just a Foley catheter, put it just within the uh, urethral meatus. Uh, you would usually oblique the, oblique the patient if you can um, because it will help you visualize it better uh, on the retrograde urethrogram. And then you inject contrast uh, under fluoroscopic uh, C-arm uh, guidance, and then you, look, you evaluate the entire urethra, and you should be able to see the contrast filling into the bladder. So if you see extravasation, obviously, then you're going to have to think carefully about how you're going to get the catheter in. Do you do it under visualization? Uh, and do you, are you going to call for urologic help at that point? Is it automatic? So let's, uh, go ahead, Dr. Go ahead, John. As a, is it just automatic to place a suprapubic tube in all these patients? Or is that something we, you kind of wait until you see, I mean, just uh, wait until you see what the injury is? Well, it, get, it gets complicated. So if, if ortho or general surgery wants to take the patient to the operating room and they're going to use hardware, to plate the uh, symphysis uh, or any of the fractured pelvis, we try not to put suprapubic tubes in because the orthopedic surgeons and the literature suggest a risk of infection to their hardware. Um, so, you know, it's not a knee-jerk reflexive response. I think if the, it depends on the clinical scenario. If the, if the urethra is partially disrupted and you have a urologist with endoscopic uh, tools available, primarily, primary realignment will decrease the complexity of the patient's recovery. Uh, although in our literature, that that's uh, controversial. Let's switch gears a little bit. And uh, one of you guys, uh, so now you got a patient and for whatever reason, they got extravasation on the kidney, the kidney's bleeding out. It got, so high, v, high speed MVC, left kidney, right kidney. We know that you want to save the kidney if at all possible. We know that you kind of, you know, when you got to take it out very quickly, what's the easiest way to expose that kidney Second part of that is, do you, do you just go to the kidney right away? Or are you going near uh, its blood supply? And how do you get proximal blood supply? I've read both things. But what is your gestalt on this one? And then if you're doing a uh, kind of a kidney sparing, wh- what what does that mean? Are you, are, you, are you yorking off the mush and are you oversewing it? Or what are you doing? Well, I think it's a very loaded question because it's very complex. I think... In general, we try to do is we try to go in there as little as possible because oftentimes, if you're going in there, the kidney's going to end up in the bucket. And um, so, if you can avoid going in, unless you're forced to, obviously, and do even an angioembolization if there's a partial injury to part of the kidney where you can you think that with uh, interventional radiology you can embolize part of it, then certainly that would be preferred because then you can try to save some of the kidney. If you're going into a situation where the patient's unstable and bleeding. Oftentimes, you're going to end up having to just control the vessel, you know, control the hilum of the kidney and end up having to remove the kidney. If you can get to the blood supply first, even through the, the root of the mesentery if you need to, um, that's going to be ideal to be able to get control. If you can get good vascular control and then the patient's stable and you can spend the time to look at what is the what has been devascularized or what has been traumatized and if you can do 
some sort of reconstruction at that time, that's fine. Uh, I can tell you that's, I don't, not sure that happens very often. I don't know if it feels differently, but, uh, usually you're trying to control the bleeding and, uh, and oftentimes it's res- resulting in, a, in an nephrectomy. But early control of the hilum is certainly the, the first thing you want to do. So when you said root of the mesentery, so let's just say, walk me two through things. First, left kidney. Second, right kidney. How do you get proximal control in each of those scenarios? And then on, and then the other part of that question is, let's just say you're diving in after it. What, what are you taking down and uh, how do you get to the kidney in a quick hurry? So... What do we say? Left kidney first. So left kidney, I mean, again, it depends on what else is going on, assuming that you're not doing any other exploration. Um, if, and it depends how unstable the patient is. I mean, ideally, if you can and you can take the time to do it and you can reflect the colon and get and expose the kidney and express, ex, expose the hilum after reflecting the colon, uh, that would be fine. And then you can get a full exposure of the kidney. If not, you can go you know, through, you'll probably be going through a midline incision, uh, find the, the, uh, the mesentery, you know, the mesentery, find where basically the uh, renal hilum would be, and you should, you may be seeing an expanding hematoma at that point, uh, where you can then cut down, identify the renal artery, renal vein, control with some clamps, and then expose the kidney to see what you need to expose and whether or not you can save the kidney. Um, I don't know, Ed, do you have any other thoughts that? Mm, uh, no, you know, I would just add, uh, Scott and, uh, team that, you know, it's, it is rare that we would ever, uh, aggressively surgically approach, uh, any level renal injury, uh, uh, even in a patient that's becoming unstable without first trying interventional radiology techniques. Um, in my time, I've only done this twice and, you know, uh, Scott, you know, getting down through the root of the mesentery, I believe my general surgical training, uh, if I remember right, is that on the left, we can expose it at the level of the, of the uh, uh, mesenteric vein traveling along the medial aspect of the left colon. But in my experience, I've never, I've never done it. Uh, I just get in behind the colon, pull everything over, making sure not to hurt the colonic uh, tissues. And then you can get your hand on the renal hilum while you're continuing the dissection so that you can safely place a clamp. And do, I would that's do that on the right or the left. That's how I've done it too. But the teaching is that you can't get to the root of mesentery, but I'm not sure many of us would be comfortable doing that, especially if you saw expanding hematoma because of the concern of what else is in there. Well, an avulsion injury off the level of the aorta or something that, you know, I'm dealing with anatomy that I don't have a ton of experience with. Um, but again, I, the, the important take-home point here is that uh, urologic trauma, whether it's a urologist, pre, urolo, urologist present or not, is almost always managed uh, and supported by good-level evidence uh, non-surgically. Okay, from there, I think we'll move into our segment we call Tips and Tricks, and this is where we ask our experts to lead us through a, a, a stickier uh, clinical scenario. Um, and for you guys, uh, we, we thought we would uh, talk about ureteral injury and ureteral repair. So... Let's say you know a, a general surgeon, myself, is performing a, uh, a sigmoid colectomy, and you know I think, gosh darn it, I think I cut the ureter. How do I identify that, confirm the, inter- the injury, and then um, how do you guys approach that injury, and how do you repair it? 
Well, so I guess with a urologist or without a urologist? Well, I'd be interested to know just kind of what your approach is. I mean, if a ur- if urologist is available, clearly. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you want to you want to be able to then dissect out, assume that you're controlled and your portion of the procedure is controlled because certainly the ureteral repair is not an emergency. So if you have bleeding or something else, usually we'll come in. And I know you, oftentimes the colorectal surgeons or general surgeons are worried about the ureter because it's not necessarily their organ, but it certainly can be put on the back burner until you get things under control. Um, once you have things under control, we'd want to dissect out the ureters, identify them, make sure, and I, we tell our residents that if the general surgeon and colorectal surgeons are using different exposure than we're used to, make sure we get the exposure that we're used to so that we're comfortable identifying the ureter, both ends of the ureter, um, make sure that, uh, you know, how, you know, concerned what, in terms of the general surgeon, where they do they, how sure are they where the injury is? Uh, can there be multiple injuries? So, you, you know, just because there's known one injury, could there have been a dissection on a different portion of the ureter? So dissecting both ends is important. And then looking at it, is this a thermal injury versus a, uh, a, a you know, a cut with the scissors? Um, and uh, then deciding whether or not you can do a primary repair with spatulation over a stent, or does this need to be a reimplant? Let's just say that it's a spatulation at first, and then walk us through an implant in the second one. So if, if it's a non-thermal injury, then um, you don't need to worry as much about um, excising some of the areas because you will get delayed necrosis if it's a thermal injury. So I think a discussion with the, the, the team and an you know, honest conversation as to whether or not they were sure that there was thermal injury. If, there's very, if they're very confident there was no thermal injury and there's Uh, no tension, and you feel like you can bring both ends together nicely. Um, The, uh, you know, the blood supply to the ureter, um, the watershed area is kind of in the mid-ureter, so you have good blood supply up by, high up by the, uh, where the kidney and the ureter are at the, uh, at the top of the ureter, and then also down by the lower portion of the ureter, it has the best blood supply in those two locations. The mid-ureter has probably the worst blood supply. But if you're in the lower ureter and you think you can get a good approximation, uh, you would want to spatulate um, the ureters uh, and then uh, use an, as Ed discussed, you don't want to use a, a permanent suture uh, in anything involving your epithelium. So uh, some sort of fine uh, absorbable suture, uh, you can run it or interrupt it, uh, the spatulated ends, and you would want to put it over a stent and then leave a drain. And what stent are you using? A double J stent, depending on the size of the patient, usually a 26 double J stent. Now, how you about... You pass it up. In, oh, go ahead. You, you can pass it right up to the kidney through the uh, defect, and then you pass the lower end into the bladder, and then you'd want to get probably an X-ray or cystoscopically confirm that in the, other, the end is in the bladder and that the proximal end is up into the kidney. Now let's go with the you know the other end of it. Let's say I, I'm out there on my own. Uh, yeah, I come across it with some energy device. There's no urologist available. How can I how can I temporize this to get uh, him this person to a definitive repair? Ed, you want to take that? Uh, sure. You can do a you can do a couple of different things. You can um, you know put a big clip on the end of the ureter and put a percutaneous nephrostomy tube in the patient. That's fair. Uh, if you are comfortable doing a Reimplant, you can do that uh, with a pretty high degree of of success using the techniques Dr. Ponsky um, 
you know, outlined uh, based on whether or not the ureter will reach to the bladder in a tension-free, tension-free way. You can leave the end of the divided ureter open and leave a drain, uh, which is probably less ideal than clipping the end of the ureter because it creates a, an inflammatory response where the urine's draining, but it'll eventually seal off. And all of those are temporizing um, and safe. A urine collection, if you allow it to build even with the drain, will also put whatever anastomoses you are doing at risk for fistulization. Um, one thing we, we have to remember always, whether there's a urologist available or not, is that even if you're uh, the region's premier colorectal surgeon and you've divided one ureter, there's a chance that you've divided the other ureter uh, also. Uh, so any urologic evaluation, when those urologists come in and they're making some effort to prove that the right ureter or left ureter, depending which side we're talking about, the side that's not suspected to be involved is also secure and safe, uh, is worth the effort. Because uh, that's certainly not a rare occurrence uh, in the urologic literature that uh, a left ureter injury is identified intraoperatively and repaired, and a right ureteral injury was, was mm-hmm. not identified. So that's a board question, uh, certainly for urologists. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you for that run-through. Uh, the next segment we run into is uh, uh, is our well final two in this case, where we just give the listeners a better idea where you both are coming from. And our first question is, what is one urological concept that you wish the general surgeons had a better understanding of? And you both can answer where the ureters are. <laughs> nice. Uh, that was easy answer. Yeah, you know, wow, that's a that's a that's a really uh, that's a really tough one, actually. I, you know, I re- we've discussed it already today, but I think the the uh, development of post uh, post procedural urinary retention in men, women, children, the sick, the well, the young, the old. Uh, is a is a complicated issue um, that often because the operative surgeon of record is not available at the time of discharge and a, a resident team member or a physician extender is discharging the patient, um, I think there's a lot of confusion in communication around that time that requires uh, some downstream uh, extended conversations that that if the if uh, your listeners take uh, note of the podcast. Uh, will save a lot of uh, confusion for the patients and make the urologist's job a lot easier. I would also add that I think that we talked about briefly before is the, the, the value of the multidisciplinary team, no matter what you do, I think always provides value. So loading the boat, you know, I, we know our colorectal surgeons will call us often about cases that they may not need us on at the end of the day, but they'll give us a heads up and say, hey, I'm doing this difficult case. We may need you. Just want to know if you're around. And I think, and we do the same thing if we have difficult cases that we think we may may be near the rectum or something, just give them a heads up. And I think loading the boat and having people available uh, is not a sign of weakness, but a sign of strength and uh, smart surgery. So I think that's what I teach my residents. And I think that's what I would tell the general surgeons that uh, it's not a sign of weakness to get other people involved and and getting the team uh, broader. Uh, It'll be better for your patients. Okay, final question. So if each of you, if you could go back in time and meet yourself on your first day of your internship, what one piece of advice would you give yourself? Oh. <laughs> this is being recorded, Ed, so be careful. Yeah. <laughs> I think, 
you know, the trouble with your internship is that it's so new. I often joke that we should do our internship after our like second or third year of our urology residency, because I think the appreciation for what you're observing with the vascular surgeons and the colorectal surgeons is often is lost on the interns because you're so focused on getting the patient discharged and making sure their potassiums are corrected that you're not paying attention to how they're doing their stoma, how they're managing the vascular control. And um, so I think making sure that people are putting things in perspective uh, from the long term as opposed to as an intern, you're really just trying to keep your head above water. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes what you're the intended exposure you're not actually picking up on. So I don't know if there's probably many other things I would tell myself, but nothing that I would want recorded. <laughs> I think I would add to that, that there's no, um, there are no experiences in the training, certainly in the early training that are invaluable uh, or unnecessary. So the process of uh, some of the more mundane tasks we engage in uh, as trainees um, have a purpose and there's a lot to be learned uh, from patient management and watching uh, surgical manipulation of tissues and approaches um, to Lee's point that you may not even realize how valuable and talented uh, the person's skill set is in front of you uh, until later on. But to just take every advantage uh, at every point in training to watch as much as you can. There's, there's just so much value in that. I think that's what I would tell myself. I would also add that the surgeon should have a life and that life, there is importance to having a life outside of the hospital, pay attention to your family, make sure that you live every day. Life is short and that, uh, that it's important to be a good physician and a good surgeon, but it's also important to have a life. Excellent. Well, fellas, thanks so much for uh, joining us on Behind the Knife. Shout out to UH Urology with John and Matt and Susan and Melody and the whole crew there. And uh, you know, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure over these last 16 months getting an opportunity to work with each of you and getting to know you on a personal and professional level. And um, we are so glad that you were able to come and join us on Behind the Knife and uh, share your words of wisdom. This was exactly what we wanted. So thank you both each uh, for uh, coming on BTK. Thanks for having us. Yeah, my pleasure. Until next time, dominate the day. 